Welcome to the We Are From Dust podcast, episode 17. My name is Katie Eldridge with We Are From Dust. We are an art nonprofit organization dedicated to placing large interactive art in public spaces around the globe. In this episode, we talk with Aaron Taylor Kuffner, the creator of Gamalatron. Think urban sanctuary created by a symphony of Indonesian gongs. We caught up with him last fall in Tulum, where he had an installation on the oceanfront, which explains a little bit of the beach breeze you may hear during this conversation. Enjoy. I try to facilitate an experience, but I don't necessarily tell people what they should experience. So it's an open platform. I try to create like a, a respite sanctuary type space in order to take people out of their uh, normal reality or thinking patterns and things like that. But where they go when they're outside of that is more determinate on who they are and what they need. So I usually hear people, how they're reacting to the work from that standpoint. So like someone who came, you know, came in clearly hungover you know, and just, like, had this, like, restful clarity, like, regrouping, you know, to just people that are so curious, like, what is, how does it work, you know, or they, they make these, you know, inferences, like, it's the wind, or it's the power of him, it's from me moving, or, 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 you know, just these kind of magical theories, which is, I think, great, because that means that their, like, curiosity is getting the best of them in order to add in, like, spice of imagination, um, and that ultimately they're kind of enthralled enough with it that that becomes their focus rather than, you know, whatever was going on in their internal dialogue prior. And so people who have never heard the word, have never heard the word gamelon, can you, can we start there? Sure. Uh, so gamelon is a traditional music form from Indonesia. It uh, consists mostly of... Uh, bronze instruments that are all struck. The word um, gamel, mangamal, the verb, means to hammer in Javanese and Indonesian. And so gamelan is an orchestra of things that are hammered. Uh, and that's both the way that they're made because they're cold or hot forged. Um, and then also that's the way that they're, they're played. Um, so imagine kind of like a series of xylophones or marimbas uh, mixed with a series of gongs. Some of them, you'd say, are kind of kettle-shaped gongs, um, and others are like hanging gongs. All of them, though, have these knobs on them, so it's not the kind of gong or cymbal where you play it in all over the surface. You play it only in this one place where you have a tuned knob, and each gong is really focused in on, on one principal note. Unlike, say, a steel drum or something where you would have or a hang drum where you'd have multiple parts on the same kind of surface where if you hit it in different places, it plays different notes. Just one sweet spot. Just one sweet spot. Um, and traditionally, it's usually played by, you know, anywhere from like five to a hundred people, depending on how big the orchestra is. It's been around for more than a thousand years. Uh, it has kind of transcended the religious traditions there in the sense that it's been part of the spiritual tradition 
of the area around Java and then Bali. Is it more Hindu or more Buddhist? Well, it predates both Hinduism and Buddhism coming to that section of now modern-day Indonesia. So it was originally part of the Kajawa and like nature religion. And then the way it worked in Indonesia is that there was this real blending of of religion. So when like Buddhists came, they had it kind of backwards. They got Buddhists before they got Hindus. And when the Buddhists came, the people that kind of adapted Buddhism were themselves involved in like nature religions and different kind of spirituality and they had used the gongs as part of that so they kind of incorporated that into their Buddhist practice so like on Bora Budur which is like one of the eighth wonders of the world a Buddhist monument in the center of uh, Java there are relief carvings of on stone of people playing what looks like gamelan instruments of these kind of gongs but then when Hinduism came uh, later with Indian traders and uh, the Mahapayet and these different like uh, dynasties arose, these Hindu dynasties in the area, they too used gamelan and it became a different form uh, uh, to practice and to worship and to have spirituality. And then even later when Islam came, it's part of the ritualistic practices of, of Islam in that area as well. Um, so it kind of the ringing of the gong, the vibration of these sounds have been part of the spiritual tradition regardless of the dogma of it. Um, And that's something really important to understand because I realize that as well and then as I kind of augment this tradition, I try to stay true to the idea that vibration from these resonant objects have an inclination towards spirituality or some kind of like mental and physical wellness that obviously they picked up on too and that you can kind of adapt it towards the life and the times that you're living in so that it makes sense for for that era the same way that it has evolved over the last thousand years or so and that it's not a static tradition but rather a like active concept in which has applicability to to anyone no matter where they are or or who they are and so I try to create my sculptures from the point of view that it doesn't have a dogma it's not necessarily linked to any spiritual specific tradition but rather focusing on the idea that like resonance from specially tuned objects have a connection with like human sensibility to have an effect on us So if we rewind to when uh, young spry Aaron heard heard the first heard your first gamelan, do do we remember this moment? Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, And yes. Okay. The no is that when um, in the mid '90s when I was living in in uh, Brooklyn, I had. Um, rented like a, a section of a loft that was run by that, and the and the big space was uh, was the the main person in the space who had the lease for the whole space was this guy David Simon, and David Simon was one of the seminal members of uh, Gamelon Son of Lion, in, based in New York, and they were much more of like an experimental Gamelon group, not your not playing the traditional canon of Gamelon music, but rather. They were making their own instruments. They were using a lot of concept from gamelan, but they were also making their own compositions. 
and he would rehearse with them. But it never really sunk in that that was necessarily gamelan or that was from Indonesia or like exactly what they were doing. Even though I was doing my own like tribal electronic experimental DJing whatever stuff. It wasn't like I wasn't involved in music. It's just it was their thing. And I knew that he was like a super pro at it. Uh, And it wasn't until almost 10 years later when I found myself in Indonesia and even after traveling for a year in Indonesia in places where Gamelan they don't really have it I met with a a DJ friend from San Francisco named uh, Noe Sunflower Fish now Dr. Noe Parker Um, and she had a a, like a grant or scholarship to study Gamelan at the Institute Seni Indonesia in Yogyakarta which is kind of like the premier art school in Indonesia and um, she was the one who brought me into the studios where they have all these old gamelan sets and it was the bass. They have these massive gongs with these like beautiful deep bass sounds in like the 50 or 60 hertz range, which is pretty close to sub bass. And um, that, was, that was probably my first like more cognizant encounter with it. And I just thought that the tonal qualities of it were so interesting and beautiful and that the more I learned about it the more interesting I got and I ended up following her and uh, stayed at that same school for um, like two and a half years and then lived in Indonesia for many years and did some sabbaticals um, learned about tuning systems worked with the guys who make gongs and how they forge them and kind of did a very unofficial apprenticeship with them which consisted mostly of me just like offering free labor if, if they had let me hang out um yeah. So, no, but yes. Okay. And when you, when you were going through that that time period, was your mind going to the next thing or what you wanted to do with this vibration or the sound or this knowledge, or were you just in the moment like, this is great, but how does one make a living out of this gong knowledge? Okay, well, I definitely never thought about how does one make a living out of gong knowledge, probably because it just seemed tacit that that's, like, totally unapplicable, you know. But at the time, no. I was just really involved in learning, and I didn't have a lot of thought about, like, what I was going to do with it. I mean, I had already... I've been an artist my whole life and done anything from, like, been a very prolific street artist to, like, running an experimental theater company to uh, like DJing and and doing a lot of electronic music production and you know throwing you know raves on subway cars you know and and just had done like a real big variety of different things and this to me was just study and intrigue and I hadn't really artistically got around to the point where like I thought about what I was going to produce because I didn't have a lot of concern about producing. I was just in a phase of my life where it was taking things in. Uh, And it wasn't until after I left Indonesia and I was back in New York and there was a guy named Eric Singer, not from KISS, but... But thanks for asking. asking (laughs) For for all you metalheads out there, uh, Eric Singer from KISS did not have like a second... like. You know, like a second moment where all of a sudden he became a robotic engineer. Didn't happen. And uh, screw you, ericsinger.com was bought by the other guy. So, uh, oh, oh, late to the game. Hey, kiss. Um, But (laughs) Eric Singer, who's like this extraordinarily creative um, 
like technologist who has the rare combination of being like a you know a musician a computer engineer and uh kind of like electrical chops mixed with like artistic intrigue he um had founded the group madagascar institute with uh, chris hackett and ryan o'connor in new york and they were like a more of like a survivor research laboratories like like a uh, machine art group you know which would make big things that blew blew up and he kind of splintered off of that and started a group called lemur which is the league of electronic musical urban robots great an acronym of and he had got a grant i think it's from the ford foundation shout out to the ford foundation uh for uh to make a series of musical robots and then um have artists come in and do residences with residencies with him in order to play and use these musical robots in new artistic creations and i just had the good fortune through like friends and my own network that i was the in the first group of people that um, that had a residency with him. So he had all these like robots that played drums and played xylophones and hit the sides of buildings and did all this other kind of stuff and a whole MIDI-based system that you could control it with. But I didn't really like the way the actual things sounded when they hit and I was supposed to make compositions out of like these these like kind of striking mechanisms. So I retrofitted them to be able to play gongs that I had brought back with me from Indonesia. And uh, that was kind of the peanut butter chocolate moment where uh, using the technology that he had developed and the system he had developed with the musical knowledge I gained as well as the, the kind of uh, the instruments that I brought back and such, we kind of created the first Gamalatron together. And in the beginning, it was kind of true to Gamelon to some degree. It was just more like the robot Gamelon orchestra with me as the lone player, if you will, on my computer. And I would, because we only had one system, I would do more like concerts. But over the next few years, as Eric, you know, he's a technologist and he's in demand, he moved on and he worked with like Pat Metheny and I know like they might be giants and he's just in demand in other ways, Disney at the, and he... They're teaching at Carnegie Mellon, all such stuff. That this project was just one of his many, like, kind of things. But I wanted to pursue it more. So I kind of took it in-house, redeveloped a lot of the technology, uh, which I was kind of designing my project around the limitation of what he was doing rather than saying, okay, if I wanted it to do exactly what I wanted to do, what it would be like? And then also kind of re rethought the way the mechanics and things like that worked. And I changed from thinking of this as a performance where it's like, you know, middle-aged white guy on a computer and like a team of robots behind him, which just to me seemed like it wasn't one, utilizing technology enough, and two, it created barriers. One, the barrier of my fallible self. And two, the barrier of like performer and stage and time with like audience. And moved more to like an installation model. I know, we're getting it's windy. It's windy in Tulum, just, people. Just think of that soft, Stay gentle, warm breeze. Stay with us. That 90-degree <laughs> breeze that you've been missing <laughs> in the dead of winter. Um, so I transitioned it to being more of a, a sound installation where there was no time limits. I would write these non-linear compositions so you could like come and go 
choose yourself for five minutes or five hours to be inside of it. But also um, broke the line between audience and performer and tried to create situations where you were surrounded by this sound. And then really in the last five years especially, I've, tra- I've focused more and more on the visual aspects of it as well. And I see these gongs as as sculptural objects and have spent a lot of time on like how to reinvent those gongs and and polish them and turn them into mirrors or patina them in different ways and really emphasize them as objects whereas in Indonesia the gamelan tradition they usually have these wood carvings that surround the instruments that's the art whereas the gong itself is not it's just a thing that makes sound and I look at it really like if you treated it that way, this could be like a Brancusi sculpture, you know, if you polished it or you made it thicker. So I've done a lot in working with gong makers and master gong makers uh, together in order to create like a, a new repurposing it in a new way. And now I really see them as visual sculptures as much as they are sonic sculptures and actually probably spend more time on the actual crafting of these sculptures that hold the robotics and hold the gongs and form their own like uh, positive and negative spaces on on walls or freestanding and, and, and such. What uh, what year are we in when you made your first Gamelotron? Uh, 2008. Okay. So January 2008 and that was kind of like a beta because I really kind of mangled his existing robots in order to do what I wanted to do with them. And then um, we worked together to make the beta Gamelatron. Uh, I think it was September 2008 was when that one was done. And then I really kind of just worked on that one until 2010, refining it. But then since 2010, where I've kind of been on my own, and um, uh, and Eric, Eric has you know remained prolific and awesome, I that's where I really have diverged much more and got into making it more sculptural and also expanding contrast to the size a lot you know um, I've made like 70 of these now so some of them are smaller with only six or seven gongs and others have over a hundred gongs um, and so they fit different spaces and contexts for that uh, we might also want to mention we're actually not just in Tulum for the margaritas, we're here as part of Art With Me, and yesterday you were on a, you were on a panel, uh-huh. and, you know, talking a little bit more about, um, well, what you called an urban sanctuary, uh-huh. creating urban sanctuaries, sure. and, and um, I think once you go into one of your installations, you can, you can see that, even here on the beach. You're looking out through these dangling ropes and you're watching the world go by in Tulum as you do. And but but you're you're cradled. You're in this you're in this safe space, if you will, and surrounded by the vibrations and the tones and to think about this in all sorts of different locations is also really interesting. Um, I don't know if you want to like yeah. comment on what on what what you are creating when you talk about an urban sanctuary. Yeah, I think the the through line in all the different artistic pursuits that I've had um, is that very naturally I didn't understand it in the beginning, but very naturally the reason why I make art is not in a vacuum, and it's not about me. 
and that I value it based on the amount it offers to other people. And the idea behind this piece is that it provides kind of like the way that like food provides nourishment so that you can have energy in order to go about you know what you need to do is that this is conceptually I look at the same way that this is I'm trying to provide some kind of nourishment in order to enable people to um, have this in their diet to facilitate the the change and the growth that they need and that the through line with all my artwork is that I always kind of gauge the success or the validity of what I'm doing based on how much um, how much it has to offer uh, the public and and people in general and what it gives them. Uh, so the idea of urban sanctuaries came about very naturally because whenever I would set up an installation in an environment, it it would naturally lean towards that um and so i kind of just accepted it and and went with it and so now it's kind of a an ongoing theme where i look for places where i can install these in urban suburban rural places doesn't matter and declare it as a sanctuary which immediately allows people to like use that as a respite use that for um whatever someone interprets the sanctuary to be and by doing that too, I think it frames it in a very interesting way compared to like, like a, I'll do a big museum exhibition and I'll call it an urban sanctuary. And then that frames it differently because it takes away some of the coding that we'll have for whatever institution that is in order to look at it more public, more like part of you know you can take an ownership in it and it's fine if you lie down or it's fine how, however you sit or it's fine if you stay for a long time you know that it it allow it, it supersedes some of the rules and the dogmatic rules that would come from wherever it would be in um so no matter if it's i'm group i'm pairing with a institution or if i'm doing something like taking vacant retail space and turning you know turning that concrete slab into you know, a place where people can can congregate or have moments of peace um, to stretch, to lie down, to sleep, to, you know, just take a, a hit of air, you know, uh, in in a different energetic field, it, it kind of works. So the concept is, is that just by saying urban sanctuary or suburban sanctuary, just by giving the word sanctuary to it, rather than art ex- exhibit or any other word that you could potentially put with it, you're framing the way in which people approach it. And then you're allowing them to be open to the work in a way that makes it uh, potentially more successful. I'm curious if, you know, looking at looking at your journey um, with Gamelon, have some of your mentors or some of these gong aficionados from Indonesia have they experienced what you've been building and and their reaction yeah that's that's a interesting one the truth of it is is mostly no unfortunately <laughs> most of the time they they you know I'm not hiding what I'm doing they've seen pictures um, they've seen videos uh, but it's very seldom that they've actually been inside the experience which is unfortunate, and it's something that I really want to change. The truth of it is, is that 
I do do a decent amount of work now in Indonesia. But um, where the gong makers are that I work with are mostly in central Java in like small towns. Uh, and the pieces that I've made just because of financial reasons and such have mostly been in higher end hotels in Bali or in homes in Jakarta and things like that. And I haven't had a, a chance to do too many like public offerings in Indonesia the way that I'd like to. And it has a lot of application for sanctuaries in Indonesia, the, the birthplace of gamelan. You'd think not almost because they still play gamelan in the traditional way there. But the truth of it is, is that Indonesia is, you know, is a fastly, fast-growing culture and it's looking outward a lot. And, you know, kids in, I don't know, Jakarta or even Surakarta or Jogjakarta, you know, they're not so much concerned with, like, what their grandfather did from a folk tradition point of view they don't totally poo-poo it but you know they're playing hip-hop and reggae and you know and they're they're listening to techno and things like that and so um my kind of reinvention of this or adapt you know is, is a way to extend its legacy in order to apply to a different not just generation but a different context where people don't use the gongs in the same way that they did a generation ago and so I found, especially in Indonesia, that a lot of people really enjoy it because they want to be proud of their Indonesian culture, but they also want to be like, you know, thinking about the future and technology and, and, and other worlds. They're not living in, in such a bubble. And so the idea of someone from New York who lived in Indonesian and, you know, Biza Bahasa Indonesia and like Tau Kebudayan Disana, like knows culture there. Uh, is is making this like kind of hybrid and then using those sounds in a different way that's not super traditional but at the same time has a nod to tradition uh, becomes really interesting. The one caveat I will I'll give you, do you can I it's a little story and I know I get wordy. I talk so oh, much. Oh no, do I, do I love I talk it. Okay. Okay. Right, that's what it's know. about. Okay, well. <laughs> we don't have a commercial break coming okay, up. Okay, there was a You're great okay. <laughs> there was a guy named Made Rendi. Um, and he, he's a gong maker. This way? Yeah. Okay. He's a gong maker in Bali. And um, multi-generational. Uh, his dad did and his dad before them did and such. Pandi class of people who make gongs. There's a different caste who make gongs. And uh, he, uh, he was always very kind with me. A teacher that I had at the Institute Sandy Indonesia Jogja gave me his name and number and wrote him a little letter in Balinese and when I showed up and said hey I'm looking for some instruments he read the letter and he always I don't know what the letter said because I at the time didn't know Balinese but um, he just always treated me really great and he he was the first person who was, who was I was working with to for gongs for the Gamletron project and I was shy to tell him what I was doing because I felt like maybe it would be blasphemous a little bit there's something in Indonesia called Gotong Royong. And what that loosely translates to is working together. And it's a principle of their democracy. It's one of the five principles of democracy where the idea that people working together is like a pillar of, of democracy. It's a, it's a way in which we coalesce as a people. And one of the highest forms of Gotong Royong is playing gamelan. Because in gamelan, the music is not written. There are no solos. And the way the music is composed is that it's all interlocking. 
and that you can't play your own sentence. It's like each you you only play like one of every four words in that sentence. Like there's the interlockingness, so the interconnectedness of it is just inherent. So the idea is that we create this music together and it could not be any other way. And so I was like, gosh, you know, me having a robot play it, I, it's blasphemous. So I was shy to tell him about it. But he had a stroke and um, I didn't think he was going to make it. He, he has made it. He's made some, some recovery. He slowed down a lot and his son's kind of taken over the, the gong making business. But after he had a stroke, I went and visited him. And yeah, in Indonesia. In Indonesia, in Bali. And I brought him some pictures of gongs that he had made and I had retuned and we had worked on together that I had installed inside the Temple of Transition at Burning Man in 2011. And, you know, the conversation was so slow, painfully slow, because he he had just really slowed down. So, I mean, at one-tenth the speed we're talking right now. And it took hours, but as it unfolded and I showed him pictures of people and I mean hundreds and thousands of people inside this, you know, huge temple surrounded by six, I think I had 67 or 74 gongs or something like that. They were wrapping the interior of this temple. They were just playing all day and I was playing videos for him and you saw people crying and holding each other and, and meditating and lying and sleeping and just, just living in that temple. And he asked, like, what are they doing? And I, and I tried to explain to him, like, it's not religious but the ritual of it is that people would come into that temple and they would write messages on the walls and they would leave objects of people that had passed or things that they needed to let go. And at the end of a week, they would burn the whole temple down and release everything. And it was this moment of catharsis for this community. And I remember both of us starting to tear up. As he kind of explained, he's like, the gongs I made are there serving these people and realizing that I was actually part of an extension of this tradition and not some blasphemous like like pivot and realizing more and more that like the Indonesians didn't really have an expectation that I would do something traditional like why they don't expect that it's only maybe like a western ethnomusicologist who's like really hell-bent on like keeping things the way they are that might have more of an opinion and that he didn't have any expectation that I would you know what do you think I was going to be like worshiping you know like Rangda and and Barong you know in New York no he he figured I'd be doing it my my way but the fact that that it had context in their life and it was part of their ritual and their spirituality and that I was aiding and abetting this spiritual process that these people were having that, they, that he could witness through these videos and these pictures that something came really full circle and, um, and affirmed a lot to me. And um, sharing that with him, I think, has made me feel more confident in, in the universality of what could potentially happen here yeah and I had so much respect for the gamelan tradition that I it had occurred to me but not to them and I think it also potentially occurred to them too it just kind of like all became realized in that moment at least for me and to some degree for him and, and, and for others that we could affirm it 
and be confident in it. Because I have so much reverence for the gamelan tradition after living there for so long and learning it traditionally and going to see the way it was played hundreds and thousands of years ago that like I was a little shy because I had felt like maybe I'm doing something wrong. And then it made me feel not lighter about it but more confident where I was like, I'm not competing with that. And that there is space for this to exist in multiple ways and there is valid context for it. And then I felt really good about what I was doing and and kind of moved forward with it. Not like I am bastardizing this tradition, but rather like the tradition will remain the tradition. And that's fine. You know? And what I'm doing with it, it doesn't have to compete with it, but it can be part of it or an extension of it just different in different contexts and I think he also realized because they go through ritualized people especially in Bali and there's a lot of different rituals that go into making the the, the gongs you know and they are so ritualized that they, it seems passive when they do it you know because they'll be putting offerings in every corning, corner of their shop and lighting incense at different times and blessing you know gongs and things like that and it just comes as second nature so it doesn't seem spiritual almost because they it doesn't seem like they're taking serious but it's just like chewing gum it's just the way that they go about it and i think that the realization that like all these things collectively mattered that these are charged objects and we should use them in charged ways and uh yeah, so that's a really long, long way to say most Indonesians have not experienced it as much as I would like them to. But there is context for it, and there is pretty widespread understanding of what I'm doing. And because of the medium, because I'm using robots, and because they can play all day and all night, and because I've had some really prolific shows like the Smithsonian uh, show at the Renwick, which had about 800,000 visitors, you know, at this point on a yearly total I usually probably more people experience a gamelatron than they do a gamelon and just because of the nature of the, the medium so like it or not I have a role as to some degree an ambassador of like at least introducing people to a, uh, an element of the tradition what do you what do you see I know earlier when we spoke I was asking the question that you know you've seen a lot of people ask or think about as they as they exit um, the Gamletron about how does he do it like what's going on in there and I I might speak for some of our listeners where it might be over our heads uh-huh. of all the all the details that that come into into play but how how do you describe what's going on in there and I would also say the interesting part to that answer yesterday for me was that all of that is like 20% of, of the art for you. I believe that was the, the ratio. Yeah. So there, there's the robotics, there's the technology, there's the composing. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're spending a lot of time and care on the making of the gong. Yeah. Yeah, so this artwork, I think the thing that I catch from people a lot of times, because most of the time when they say, hey, did you write this music? You know, because the music will be very forward fronting. And so they'll see that as the art is like composing. 
And when I really break down my time, I realize like I spend a l- more time making all the different aspects, which has like challenged me to be like on the side of making instruments, on the side of like you know doing industrial design, handmade industrial design, making the robotic levers and mallets and things, you know, mixed with the physical computing side of things and the software side of things and uh, even just like the wiring of such and the, the ability to like make something that works uh, the sculptural side of like welding and bending and rolling metals into different shapes in order to like you know create these like aesthetically hopefully beautiful objects a- as well and that it's this really like multi 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 multi-faceted uh, project that for me allows me to like explore so many different avenues of creation that it keeps it really interesting and the reason why it's like that is because in the beginning maybe later thank you okay okay margarita break margarita break uh <laughs> sip sip so with other projects i would do a project and then i get a new idea and move on to a new project and with this, as I would get new ideas, I try to incorporate it into what I was doing. So instead of like moving on to a new project, I'd be like, oh, well, maybe I can turn this into more of a sound installation. Maybe I can turn this into more of a sculpture. Maybe I can turn this into more of a beautiful object. Maybe I can explore this other thing. So I've used the Gamelatron as an umbrella project to, to explore all these different mediums within it. So that it has had more and more depth as it's like grown. But what it means is that sometimes the aspects of it that people think are the art, let's say like the composing of it, uh, end up being very singular. No, gracias. No. No. Uh, So it seems to be very singular, like just the music. When I look at it and I say, oh, the music is like the last part that I wait until it's installed and on site before I even like broach it. I think that's interesting too. Maybe we can touch on that as well is that... In this case, you've the, the structure, this palapa, this Mexican tent, if you will, yeah. has been built, and the gongs have been installed, and they are being controlled by the robotics, if you will, mm-hmm. and what you. And then each day you're coming in to do what? Yeah, in the morning I come early and I write music for it. You know, I basically just take some time out to, like, compose um, new, like, I guess, new sequences of music. And then what I usually do is kind of this long-form arrangement of all the different music that I've made in, like, kind of a little bit of a DJ style or, like, a live PA style. Um, And I use, like, Ableton Live and a series of drum pads and, and, and... you know these kind of like the controllers that electronic musicians would use and I just jam on it and I jam on it in the space very cognizant of like the fact there's an ocean like 10 feet away and I want to hear the ocean in it or even finding the tempo of the waves break and then working with that as well and noting that like all the different sounds uh, that are happening become part of it and also just thinking of like why would people come in here writing music for the use case scenario and uh, and knowing that its intensity of the, the music and its ebb and flow fits to the reality of who would, would walk by and come in 
And then that'll change over time. If this piece were to move somewhere else or be in a different acoustic environment or a different use case scenario, then I'd write completely new music or new arrangements from the other music in order to fit those things. And so I see composing as the most adaptable part. That's why it happens last. Um, but adaptable within, within a range because the tuning of all the gongs I already predetermined. And the tuning is not standard. No Gamelon or Gamelatron, more so Gamelatron, is the same. Uh, I This is a four-note tuning system that I have going in there, which doesn't echo Western tunings, major or minor. It do, it's not similar to any Indonesian tunings or anything like that. It's just something that I kind of invented by listening to, the, to different sounds and then trying to make relationships between them in order to build my own sonic universe. And so it's like going shopping for, for, for dinner. You buy a few ingredients, but then when you come back to cook, you're limited to those ingredients. So you have to cook with them. And so I have a very limited palette that I'm composing with. So it's not like sitting down at a piano and having like 12 notes in an octave and you could play in so many different keys and such and you have to make those decisions. I'm limited by like only these notes and these timbres. It sounds like a great show like an audio version of chopped <laughs> yeah chef's challenge but but it is and and what's great is since i'm making the tuning system i make it so it's almost impossible to play something that doesn't sound good <laughs> you know it's just like if you have great burrata and super fresh tomatoes and like oh, the best basil, basil it's on you if like whatever you put together like doesn't taste well you know and it's the same thing where uh, tuning, I look at composing. The beginning of composing happens in tuning the gongs. And that is something that happens first, like sometimes even before I make the sculpture, is I'm deciding on the sonic universe. And that really is like the DNA. It's like what's built into what the piece will be because that's it only can sound like that. And then it's a, a series of different rhythms and relationships and time that then I'm playing around with when I'm composing, which becomes a much easier job than having the pressure of like, every note possible whereas now I have only like this limited scope to work with and that limitation creates a lot of like freedom and beauty and it allows me to like flow a lot more and less painstaking composing for your for your existence here in Tulum or the Gamelotron's existence uh, right now it's on the beach for the Art With Me Festival which wrap, wraps up today where does it go next? And then I'm curious what your hopes are for for these installations, just in general, like where you want to take them. Okay, so this specific piece, and this is something people don't realize either that have seen Gamelotrons over the course of decades, is that I make a lot of them. There's not, I know I talk about it like a Gamelotron, you know, or the Gamelotron, which would mean like it's one single thing. but. I'm at 70, I've made 75 now. Now, 20 of them have kind of been rebuilt. So there's like, in theory, there's about 55 of them out there in the world. And so um, at any one time, 30, 40 of them can be playing and coexisting, uh, you know, uh, in the world. So this specific one that I brought to Tulum um, is going to stay in Tulum. Um, we don't have a per more permanent space, but the, the Art With Me Festival guys... They're pretty determined to, to create a sculpture park. 
and they're going to have a space within it in, inside that sculpture park. So eventually it'll be installed there. And then the hope is that each year we'll build a different structure for it on the beach. And when they have art with me, it'll go inside that structure. And then afterwards it'll go back to the, the, the sculpture park. Um, on a bigger scale, like what the Gamletron is doing, is, um, I mean, I run a business where I... Um, sell these to private individuals and to like retreat centers and spas and hotels and different public spaces and such and I continue doing that I take these like three three up to maybe five commissions a year it takes me a few months to make each one they're all like handmade and I do not have a big team on purpose because I love making them so why why give someone else the fun when I can have it but uh yeah, so I continue doing that, but the venue that I've really been pushing myself on a research development level over the last years has been doing more and more things outside, things that can exist long-term, off-grid, outside, um, especially in natural, like nature habitats. So I've been trying to work with solar and wind and different ways to like uh, generate energy that could be used to power the, the instruments, and creating um, sculptures that... Um, that protect and house the few sensitive things, uh, changing up materials and experimenting with them some so that they can take weather in different ways, and then also working on compositions that reflect nature more, um, ways in which to, to write compositions that are have a generative aspect next to, let's say, how much... Uh, how much solar is being generated at that time and kind of like make a, a song based on the amount of available energy and if it's winter or if it's nighttime that you can go into like phases of hibernation where uh, the artwork can really just be more symbiotic with, um, with light or with how it's generating power and then kind of exist on its own in natural settings. And when, you, when you talk about that is there something is there something that you dream of when you talk about that that would be the ultimate is it antarctica is it a jungle somewhere is it like when you really go there is there something where you think wow that's that's really what i'm talking about well i am for the full-scale proliferation of like gamelotrons to be everywhere so there's no one place that's like the pinnacle the goal for many, many years has been to make a international network of sanctuaries with Gamaltron centering them, and that they could be pilgrimage places, places all over the world for people to, to gather in within their community or in natural locations that could give them excuse to like to, to go there. And I started a non-profit, non-for-profit foundation, which has kind of dragged its feet a little bit, but the, the main intention is for that, is in order to create these, um, these sanctuaries everywhere. And part of the goal of really being able to open up spaces in the outdoors, meaning there's no palapa, there's no tent, there's no pavilion, there's no anything. This is like mounted to trees or in fields and such like that, unmanaged by people for years and years is just that to be able to like have it be more self-sustaining and i think having it in nature especially deeper in nature where you have to like hike to and such is part of fulfilling this this goal of creating respites that this could be pilgrimage places uh for it um 
Yeah, the, so that's the, the big what's goal. The, what's the name of your nonprofit? Well, it's the Gamletron Project Foundation. Yeah, not not too <laughs> super original on that. Yeah. But well branded. Thank, th- thank you, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, we could talk for hours, which hopefully we will. Um, but I just like to thank you for your time, and um, and maybe it's it's time for another margarita or another dip in the ocean. But um, where can people find your work if they are so inclined after this conversation? Yeah, I mean, just the word Gamletron. Uh, I kind of one reason to choose it is because it's like a made up word which means like I got the URL I got the at everything you know so at Gamalatron on most platforms and uh, just Gamalatron.com but you know web search will the first I don't know 50,000 results will probably be relatively informative so um, yeah that's that's the, the easiest way Thank you for joining us for the We Are From Dust podcast. You can learn more about Aaron Taylor Kuffner's work at gamelatron.com. Go to wearefromdust.org to find out more about our mission to place large interactive art in public spaces around the world. We Are From Dust is fiscally sponsored by Sierra Art Foundation.